Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. At 8.07 a.m. Hawaii Standard Time on Saturday, January 13, 2018, the residents of Hawaii were alerted through emergency alert system by television, radio, and cell phones that an incoming ballistic missile was on its way to the islands. Text messages on cell phones read, Ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. What followed was 38 minutes of confusion, terror, and disbelief as residents struggled to make sense of what was happening. Then, after 38 minutes, the state released a new message. There is no missile threat or danger to the state of Hawaii. Repeat, false alarm. Here with us today are Rob and Keiko Feldman, who co-directed the award-winning documentary, This Is Not a Drill, 38 Minutes That Changed Lives. Rob and Keiko are married and live in Glendale, California, just outside of Los Angeles. They met at NBC in Los Angeles, where Rob produced the 5 o'clock news and Keiko produced the 6 o'clock news. They went on to start Juris Productions together to create documentaries that give a voice to the victims of catastrophic accidents as they go through the legal process. As formal journalists, they're always on the lookout for a great story and seize the opportunity to produce This Is Not a Drill, following Hawaii's false missile alert. Robin Keiko, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us, Erin. Thank you. So first off, I want to congratulate you on a really well-made production of This Is Not a Drill. Uh, I thought it was a really amazing documentary film. It really captured the emotional experience of the informants in your film. And it was really moving and intense. And so first off, just want to congratulate you on that. Thank you. It's nice to hear that you got so much out of it. And I hope that the other people who see this film will also get something out of it. So I've been in Hawaii for about 30 years. And I've got to say that I've seen some very strange things happen in this state. Prior to the false alert, there was probably the Tyke the Elephant incident. I don't, don't know if you ever heard about that one, but that was pretty weird. But this one takes the cake. It was pretty bizarre and very disturbing. So yeah, wow, what an experience. Yeah. We were, we were on vacation at the time of the incident. And so uh, we were actually in Las Vegas. And here on the mainland, we didn't hear about it until well into the incident. So we didn't really experience all 38 minutes in real time when we were watching CNN. It was really right at the end and just before the all clear that the news media started reporting it on the mainland. So we had a much different experience here than you guys living through all 38 minutes. Wow. Is that the sense that you got about how sort of the rest of the world was experiencing this event compared to Hawaii? It felt like by the time most of the people here knew about it, it was over and it was just more of a gee whiz for them. But we were, Rob and I were both so fascinated with the idea of coming face to face with the end and what that means for you and, and what decisions you make and how, how you choose to accept that or not accept that. And so we couldn't stop talking about it. We were on this trip and we just kept talking about it for days. And that's, I think that's kind of what made us realize like there's something here that needs to be shared. That's a major part of the points I heard from many of the informants in your documentary. So I'd like to hear more about that as we go along. 
first off, I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit more about yourselves. Like, how did you get involved with this project? How did it turn from a concept into a reality? And maybe a little bit more about your life as filmmakers and what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, well, Keiko and I are married. Um, we met at NBC in Los Angeles a long time ago. I was the five o'clock news producer. Keiko was the six o'clock news producer. Uh, we worked there together for a number of years and went on to start a production company in Los Angeles. So your paths crossed pretty frequently between those hour uh, pass-bys between five and six o'clock. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yep, we were we were face to face all day long in the newsroom and mm -hmm. fighting over stories. Exactly. <laughs> um, and we went on to start a production company. And our day job, as it were, is we work for attorneys, and we help them tell the stories of their clients who have been through traumatic events. For example, the uh, plane crash in Indonesia, we went over and spent time in Indonesia talking to the families there about what they were going through. The attorneys used that to try to help negotiate the case and hopefully avoid trial is the idea. So that's our day job is we're, we're face to face with these traumatic, you know, life altering situations every day. But as journalists, we kind of always have one eye out for great stories. And so that's what attracted us to this. We thought, well, that's a really fertile ground for some really interesting stories. And, you know, just thinking about what we would have done in that situation made us really interested in this. Wow. So you have a lot of experience then kind of capturing the emotional experiences of people in tragedies. So this was nothing new for you to do something like this. Yeah, I think our, our background and what we, what we tell people we do for a living is that we're storytellers. And so any chance that we can have to talk to somebody, understand what their experience was, and then share that is what we love to do. So let's talk a little bit about the film. You interviewed a number of people in this film. There were some individuals, some families, people of different walks of life, different reasons for being in Hawaii. Tell us a little bit about how you found these people and what it, what it was like working with them. It was interesting because when, when once we decided that we really wanted to dive into this and explore how it affected different people and what their experiences were, finding great stories was a needle in a haystack. And we did a lot of it because we were in LA. So we couldn't just start talking to people. We didn't have friends at the time that were living in Hawaii. So we didn't have connections in that regard. Um, so a lot of it was just digital research and people had tweeted, they had um, posted goodbyes online and there was YouTube videos of things. And so kind of we started there. And then as we would talk to people that would lead to new people and we would just chase it down. But it was very much a needle in a haystack, I think, for, for the stories that we tried to tell. There must have been a quite a bit of digital media that was getting pumped out around this event. I think the first lady that you started with was even live streaming something about what was going on and you must have found that and contacted her, I imagine. Mm -hmm. She was, that was a musician named Olivia Tai and she happened to be live streaming to all her fans at the time. And as she's speaking, you actually hear the alert come through her computer. So that was, that was the only case that we found anyway of somebody whose reaction was really documented in real time as they were experiencing the alert. So that was fascinating to us and that's why we wanted to reach out to her and tell her story. Absolutely, I think that was a great way to start there were so many varied experiences um, once we started talking to people, ranging from, I, I didn't believe it at all, to, I just thought that was a joke and I laughed it off, to, 
I really believed that my life was imminently about to end and I started saying goodbye to my family. So it was this incredibly wide range of emotions, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking about it from a psychological perspective that this is maybe one of the biggest psychological experiments in history, you know, where the, the people of Hawaii were unwitting participants in it, where, you know, more than a million people are told you're about to die. Now, what do you do with that information? Absolutely. And that's a major reason why I wanted to talk with you guys, because the whole thing did seem like a perfect example of an entire state of people facing their potential imminent death. So I appreciate the opportunity to discuss that. I don't know if this is, this is probably a really difficult question to ask and to answer. And maybe you've spoken with some people about this, but did you get any kind of sense about who reacted in what kind of ways to this incident and what might've led one person to react one way as opposed to another person to react a different way? Is there any kind of patterns or anything you could see? That's a really interesting question. I, I think one of the things that I observed were that the people who took it very, very seriously were people who were also plugged in to what the climate was leading up to that day. Mm-hmm. So the people who had been following the news, who were sort of, you know, who were aware of this ramp up of tension that was happening so that when it happened, it made complete sense to them. The rhetoric leading right up to that was getting more and more inflamed. And so if you were watching the news or you were following it or reading it, when it happened, it made sense. For people who weren't doing that, and there are a lot of people who just put the news out of their mind, I think it came out of the blue and they assumed it was a mistake. So Mm. I'm not sure if that's a pattern, but I did notice that the difference was there were a lot of people who could just laugh it off or roll over and go back to bed and think somebody's going to get in trouble. And then there were people who thought, oh, it's finally here. So if I recall correctly, this was around the time that Donald Trump and the North Korean leader were just exchanging barbs about nuclear ramp up and just posturing. Was was that around that time? Yeah, this was this was shortly after who's got the bigger nuclear button. And, you know, here on the mainland, uh, we see news about North Korean tensions. It's not nearly as personal as it is for people in Hawaii who are in the path of, you know, a potential aggression from North Korea. So what we wanted to do in our film was we built uh, just a minute and a half montage at the beginning of the piece showing that ramp up of tension so that you're in the mindset that the people of Hawaii were when they received this alert. And you understand why many people took it so seriously. The tensions had built up so much that literally the week before the alert, they had started retesting the alarms in Mm -hmm. Hawaii. So that's a seven day window where one thing was a test and then the next week you get a note saying it's happening. It wasn't like it was out of context time-wise. It was directly before this happened. Right, I remember that the state started talking about nuclear preparedness drills and they were starting to hold meetings at the community level, which I just thought was like, what kind of bizarre dystopian universe are we living in that we're I mean, I remember that from like, they were doing this in the 1950s and gosh, even when I was a kid, there was duck and cover drills for nuclear attack when I was in elementary school, which even at the time I thought was kind of ridiculous. The front page of the Star Advertiser just a a month or so before this 
had a full page color graphic showing the potential blast zone and where the fallout would be if there was a nuclear impact at Pearl Harbor, which is where most people who went through this and most people who got the alert assumed that at least that would be the intended target. Nobody knew if they had the technology to actually hit that target, but most people that we talked to said, if it's coming, it's probably coming for Pearl Harbor. That's the likely target. Right, my house overlooks Pearl Harbor, so that's the first place I looked. Are the, are the boats heading out to sea? Are they scrambling jets? It was very, very calm. And so for me, it led to a really sort of a surreal and bizarre experience. In line with what we were saying about how plugged in you were led to how seriously you took it, one of the people in the documentary who is uh, Matt Lapresti, who was in local government, had been working on Hawaii's preparedness and when he got the text, he absolutely believed it. I mean, that's the level of, if you were plugged into it, you took it seriously. Right, that makes sense. I mean, he was living and breathing the possibility of a nuclear strike, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit more about some of the informants that you did interview in your film, some of the subjects. I mean, they were all really amazing stories, all very, very moving, and you could really... Was there one that touched you in particular? I'm always fascinated because every friend who's watched our documentary, I asked them, you know, like, which story resonated with you most, and it's never the same for two people. There are a couple, and I wanted to mention a couple that really struck me, and then maybe ask you about a couple that particularly struck you. But since you're asking, you know, I was really fascinated and moved with the story about the, there was the teenage boy who was, you know, struggling with his sexual identity. He had just come out to his parents a few months before the missile alert, but still was really struggling with that. And then the way that story unfolded, the way you interviewed him and he talked about his experience was really moving. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about, about him and that family. Yeah, that, I think that's the most meaningful story in the documentary for me. Mm. And it was a story that we, that was, talking about a needle in a haystack, that was a story that came from a Reddit post, because I was searching Reddit for missile alert, how people responded. And somebody had asked, what did you do during the missile alert? And Kenny, who did not have his name on the, whatever you call it, on his Reddit name, he had said, I came out during the missile alert. That's all he said. And then he never posted again. And I started emailing him and I had no idea how old he was. I had no idea anything about him. I, and in my head, he was like a 25 year old. I don't know why. Um, kept emailing him, and it was months. It took, I think six or seven months for him to respond to me. And then when he did, he said, I'm a 15 year old kid. And I was like, there's no way we're going to be able to interview him without talking to his parents. And what are the chances they're going to say yes. And then it turned out he had the most supportive family you mm. could ever imagine. And I have a son who came out at 15 um, and it was gay. And so I just had a heart for this mm. kid. And when I sat down to interview him, he was so tender and so honest and so, and so articulate and just like, I absolutely loved his story. I loved who he is, but he was also still very traumatized. I mean, I think you see it when you watch the documentary that even eight months later talking about it, it was impossible for him to talk about yeah. without incredible emotion. The fear part, not the coming out part, but just the fear of what he went through, the terror. And he was still a little bit adjusting to being out. Um, I think what's really interesting about his story and what we loved about his story was that we went into that interview 
believing that he came out during the missile alert because he didn't want to live his life anymore. You know, he didn't want to die without having been honest. That's what I thought. When we got there, I found out that he actually came out right after the all clear had happened because now he knew he wasn't going to die and he really wanted to be honest about who he was. And that to me was profound. So his existential struggle here, it sounds like, was really about when I'm faced with the possibility of death, I want to be as authentic as I can. Authenticity is what's important to me. That, that's what he faced. Yeah. And it was, it was profound. It's, it's one of those things that makes you really re-examine how we live our lives and what we, what we prioritize. Let's hear about another story that particularly resonated with you guys. Is there another one you want to share with us? Well, there were, there were several stories of family members who weren't together at that moment. And I think that's maybe the most terrifying thing for any family is to realize that something's going to happen and you're apart. And so we, we touched on several of those stories with, with uh, people on different islands, even on business. And then there was one story that really touched me, which was uh, Ryan Ozawa was at home with his family and he had a young son who was asleep. He got the message. He and his wife were together at the time. They got the message and believed it 100%, thought that the world was coming to an end. But their teenage son was asleep because it was, as you know, it happened in the morning. He was still asleep, sleeping in. And Ryan said, I didn't know if I should wake him up to tell him that something terrible is going to happen. And he really wrestled with this moral dilemma of, do you wake him up just to see the end of the world? Or do you let him sleep peacefully through it? Or if it's not going to happen, he doesn't have to experience that terror. Should I wake him up for five seconds of terror? Or should I just let him sleep? And he ultimately decided to let him sleep. I wrestle with that all the time. I don't know what I would have done in that situation either. I think it's a very human story. And Ryan still says he doesn't know if he did the right thing and he doesn't know how he would do it if it happened again because his son woke up and was mad that he hadn't been woken up. So the son said after the fact, he wished he would have been woken up. But of course, there's no way that the dad, Ryan, could have known that because he was sleeping. So it's a complete dilemma, right? I thought a lot about that one as well after I watched the film and I still don't know what I would do in that situation. So I could see how moral dilemmas like that are very confusing and very trying when they come up. I was particularly moved by, there was um, one of the people that we interviewed, she's a yoga instructor and she's married to a guy in the military. And as soon as they got the alert, he jumped into military mode. He knew like, we need to do this and this and this to try and survive. And they get into the bathtub and they're cowering in the bathtub. And she just raised this really interesting question, which was that she, that's not how she wanted to die. She felt like if death was coming, she wanted to raise her head and be in acceptance of it and not be cowering in a bathtub and be ready for whatever was next. And I thought that was really interesting that it was about how you die and how you go out for her and, and what that meant. And we saw that echoed in several of the stories where it wasn't really a fight or flight response to this, but it was more like a flight or accept for people. They had to just come to terms with the fact that this is it, or they said, I'm going to do everything I can to survive. If it's going to Pearl Harbor, I'm going to get on the other side of the mountain, or I'm going to get down in a bunker underneath the earth, or I'm going to find some way to protect my family. But some people said, you know what, if this is it, I had a great run. We're going to go out on the beach. We're going to watch the fireworks and that'll be the end. 
and just the choices people made in that moment, like people who, and, and I don't think we put a lot of this in the documentary, but there were people who called home to say goodbye, called the mainland to say goodbye to their parents or their children, or, you know, this might be it, this is the end. And then there were people who thought that's not how I, I don't want them to be traumatized. I want, you know, I don't want to send that as my last goodbye. I don't want that to be their last memory of me as being in terror. And so people had to make these choices in that moment. Like you had a few minutes and you didn't, like you had to have the clarity of thought of how am I gonna meet this moment? And that was really interesting to us. A lot of people didn't want to say goodbye. They said things like, I love you or I am thinking about you, or it's everything's gonna be okay. But people didn't wanna to go to that place where they felt like they were saying goodbye. It sounds like a lot of people really commented about how they really didn't know what they would do in that kind of situation until they were confronted with it. Do you think that people learn something about mortality and death and how they would confront their mortality next time based on what happened to them this time? Like how much of like an existential learning experience was it for people? I felt like a lot of people learned about what they want their life to be because really in those moments, what seemed to be a recurring message from a lot of people was, okay, I have massive clarity now about what's important in my life. And if I survive this, this is what I wanna do, or this is what I wanna change, or this is how I wanna be. And that kind of came up over and over again. And I remember the, um, guy who had a heart attack, Sean. Yeah. I mean, I, we remember seeing, you know, the story of a man who had a heart attack, a massive heart attack during the missile alert was all over the news and no one had ever talked to him before and talking to him and, and hearing him say very quietly, like I'd been living my life just to be a paycheck. And I hadn't, you know, like in that moment when he knew he was dying and he actually literally died. I mean, he died on the table and they were able to bring him back, but in that experience, he had such clarity of, okay, I need to change how I live my life. I need to live for more than making bills. And, and I remember being really moved by that too. There was also a theme of preparedness that really came through in this. Preparedness for some people meant, you know, having a place to go, having a plan, a disaster plan. We're going to go underground. We're going to store a bunch of food. But then there was this kind of philosophical preparedness? Am I spiritually prepared for the end? Am I prepared with my family? Have I just, do the people I've wronged know that I'm sorry about that? And I believe it was Ryan Ozawa who said, you know, you can have a disaster plan. You can have all the plans in the world, but do you have a plan to let your family know you love them? Do you have a plan to make sure that your family's okay in this kind of situation? There was a couple of other stories that really struck me with some similar veins. There were the individuals who were visiting Hawaii for various reasons, uh, a couple that was getting married here and they were planning to start their life together and celebrate their love for each other in Hawaii, a beautiful place where all the relatives came. And then there was the couple, I think they were here for a baby moon. They're having a baby and they had to confront mm -hmm. various ideas about what we had planned. We were starting something new here that we were so excited about. It's all going to come to an end. Uh, tell us a little bit about those couples and those kinds of stories. What was that like? Well, I, I think the couple that got married there are such a great tale about how this, this event changed lives because they went there for their wedding. They, you know, they 
had all their friends there. They had a beautiful wedding. I mean, we were stunned by the video of their wedding because it was so picture perfect and beautiful. And then they had this big scare and it really made them reevaluate what they wanted in their lives. And they, since that happened, they were living in San Francisco when we interviewed them a few months after the missile alert, since then have moved to Hawaii, have changed careers, are chasing their dreams. They have a, a beautiful baby and another on the way. I mean, they, they just, I think, got this very real glimpse of the fact that life is temporary and it's fragile. And so we are going to make the most of every day. And that was the most positive thing that came out with it. Many of the people we talked to said, I learned that life is short. You know, it sounds cliche, but I really learned that my time on this earth is going to come to an end and I want it to mean something. And I want to get everything out of it that I want to get out of it. And tomorrow's not guaranteed. So we better take action today. Sure. Yeah. And chasing scary dreams. Sometimes that feels really daunting to, to go after something big that means a lot to you. But I think when you're faced with the real possibility that you will die without achieving any of your dreams, that's 10 times scarier. Absolutely. So I'm just curious, the couple that had their wedding here and then ended up moving here, did the missile alert have anything to do with their decision to move here? They say it did. They say they had, they'd always loved Hawaii and they'd always dreamed about someday, you know, having a place there, but they hadn't really put anything into practice. And then and then after this event, they started figuring out like, you know, life is short. Where do we want to be? How do we want to live? What do we want to do? So the ordeal went on for about 38 minutes. And then this all clear message was sent out. Disregard, false alarm. What were some of the experiences that people had and expressed after finding out that it was actually a false alarm? Well, that reaction obviously depended on how much you bought into the fact that this was a real thing. But if you believed it, there was a tremendous sense of relief. And then almost immediately, everybody said right into anger. People were so upset that something like this could possibly happen. And you even hear that we got some of the 911 recordings of people calling in to say, I got this alert, what's happening? And when the operator tells them, don't worry, it's a false alarm, somebody pushed a button or sent out the wrong message by mistake, you could hear the people instantly jump to anger, and which is understandable. They've been put through a really traumatic ordeal. Yeah. You probably had some idea about reactions of people in the state toward state government officials, about how the state how this happened in the first place and how the whole thing was handled. Like what what was the sense about that? I don't think we really spent much time in our interviews dissecting that part of the story because people are mad and when they start to talk about their why they're mad about that, they start to analyze what went wrong and what they've heard went wrong. And, and to us, it was really about those choices that they made and how this impacted them and how it changed their lives. And so we didn't really spend a lot of time on, you know, are you angry? Why are you angry? People expressed it for sure. But I think the best example of how people reacted to the all clear is Kenny, like we talked about, which at the point that it was over and you realize I'm not going to die. Okay, now what does this mean for my life? That's when he chose to come out. So, you know, for some people it was rage because how could this happen? How could this go wrong? And for other people, it was like, okay, I'm getting a second chance. It's really understandable that people would feel so angry and rageful. And the interesting thing is in my clinical practice, whenever I have a patient who's talking a lot about anger or rage, usually we're looking for deeper emotional experiences beneath that 
that have been scratched or pushed. So if somebody's feeling angry or, or rageful, it's often sort of a reaction to, to feeling fear, vulnerable, helpless, victimized. Like those are really uncomfortable feelings to feel. And you can't feel them for too long, right? Because if you do, you're just going to, you know, that's when you go kill yourself or you just go into a deep depression. So people start expressing this anger and rage. They've got to push it out somehow. One thing that I've really noticed is that there's been, in my opinion, a real mm -hmm. lack of conversation about what happened after it occurred. You know, this last year, all my patients are talking about COVID. That's been a huge thing on people's minds. The Black Lives Matter came up a lot. And obviously a lot about the election was really bothering people. But this false missile alert sort of came and went. And then it seemed to me that people stopped talking about it. And I was really happy to see you guys did a documentary because obviously there's a lot of people that have a lot of emotions and feelings about it. So I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. We were surprised by that too. Um, I was going to say, I, I do think that people felt very shut down. There was a lot and we, we, said, we got it a lot because when we released the trailer for it and then eventually when the documentary was being broadcast in Hawaii, there was a lot of feedback that was like, I laughed it off. What's wrong with you guys? You're ridiculous. You know, and, and I think mm -hmm. if it was very real to you and you were traumatized, that doesn't invite you to share your feelings. When you know that there's a pretty loud vocal population of people who think you're ridiculous for having been so scared, it doesn't foster conversation about it. The station in Hawaii and, and also our social media, when we would post anything about the documentary, hundreds of comments of people saying, oh my God, this is exactly what I went through. Oh my God. Like it was both ends of the spectrum. We would get either you guys are silly and ridiculous or this was life-changing. And I remember Ryan Ozawa, I'm not sure we used the soundbite in the, in the actual film, but he talked about the fact that there needed to be more compassion and more understanding of people that just because you didn't either get the alert, there were a lot of people who just their phone didn't go off or they didn't have their phone near them. And by the time they learned about it, it was over and that there was a lack of compassion by those people towards people who really suffered during those 38 minutes. It was interesting as the documentary was being broadcast in Hawaii, which was in January of this year, 2021, we were watching and we could see the comments that were happening uh, as the film was being broadcast because it was also webcast online. And watching the comments in the very beginning, the comments were all, why are you doing this? This is so dumb. This was a blip. It didn't mean anything. Why would you make a movie about this? It was, it was just a silly event. And then by about 10 minutes into the movie, people were, had completely changed their comments. It was, oh my God, I'd forgotten how, how affected I was by this. I forgot how deeply I was touched by this. These poor people, I really feel for what they're going through. We had a couple people who started out criticizing and those same people at the end said, wow, that was better than I expected. So they, they, you know, they had to open their minds and their hearts a little bit to the fact that their experience was not the experience. You know, I suspect there is a certain amount of psychological denial that goes on for people about this experience and that maybe the comments and the way people were reacting to the film, just like you said, are an example of that. Are you aware of anybody that has done any research on what has some psychological research or social media research on the subject. It, it just seems like there's been kind of a lack of that. 
as we were working on the film, we talked to a couple of professors at Hawaii Pacific University, and they were working on a study where they were trying to gather everything from social media. They had put out some uh, response surveys and they were gathering data on it. We talked to them while we were working on this, but they really hadn't formulated conclusions yet, hard set conclusions. What they did find was, you know, in their preliminary work, what they were telling us was, it looks to us like a lot of people didn't believe this was true, but among the people who did believe it was true, it was really impactful and really traumatic for them. So if you believed it, you were really affected by it. If you didn't believe it, it, it just didn't mean much to you. It was just a, a, a blip. What do you think was the most challenging part for you guys in making this film? Well, anytime you're trying to tell a story that's an ocean away, that creates uh, an issue for a filmmaker. You know, we, we got there as much as we possibly could. I would have loved to just embed for a year and, and try to tell these stories. That just wasn't practical for us. So that was a challenge not being geographically uh, where the story was. But then just trying to find the stories, trying to find diverse stories. Because we were doing so much of our work online, that tends to be self-selective. So you're you tend to get stories of people who are very plugged in, who are social media users, but we wanted to tell all different types of stories. And so that required going beyond that, trying to talk to sources, having them refer you to other sources and finding stories that way. So we've talked about the aftermath of some of this with some of the informants. The couple actually moved back to Hawaii. I think the man who had the heart attack and, and was actually pronounced dead for eight minutes or so, completely changed his life around. Are there any other notable changes that you followed with some of the participants in the film that you wanted to talk about? I'm super proud of Kenny who um, finished high school. So we did his interview, he was 15, he was a sophomore in high school. He went on to become the president of the GSA, which is the Gay Straight Alliance at his high school. He is now in his sophomore year at Cornell. So he is going to school in New York and is just a remarkable, I mean, when you think about the fact that he had been suicidal on the phone with a suicide hotline, wondering if his life was worth living. And today he is this kid that anyone could admire for, for how he's living his life and the things he's accomplishing. Like I am incredibly proud of him and um, I follow him you know, and every time I see a post from him anywhere, it just warms my heart. Has he said anything about what his plans are for the future? Well, I think, you know, when you're 19 years old and you're a sophomore, like the whole world is ahead of you. I know he <laughs> is very excited about performing arts and he's, um, he was involved in that in high school. And I know he's continuing to study that in college, but, and I keep in touch with his parents who are, you know, just remarkable human beings. They're both University of Hawaii people and yeah, I don't know. I, I think we're going to see more from Kenny. I think he's going to accomplish great things, but uh, I think he's still in that formative time. If people want to watch This Is Not a Drill, how can they get access to it? Unfortunately, at this very second, they can't is the short answer. We are working on a distribution deal right now, and hopefully we'll have some news on that very soon. The film was broadcast at Hawaii News Now and was available online for a while. It's not there right now. There is a chance that it'll come back to that platform, but we are in talks right now and we will let you know so you can let your listeners know as soon as we know exactly where they can see the film. Great, after we post this episode online, I'll update the notes of the show to let people know where they can watch the film. 
Well, so what's next for you guys in your filmmaking career? Well, so we still are producing documentaries for our clients and, um, and you know, after a year of COVID, we had a slowdown and now we're super busy with that, but we're always looking for that story that we feel like needs to be told and that we are uniquely suited to tell. And so those two things have to kind of come together in a moment of magic for us to want to invest um, our time and energy into another documentary project. Um, so we're looking for that right now. And um, I don't know what that's going to be. Well, I'm sure if there's a, another missile crisis or some kind of a crazy, bizarre experience like this, you guys will show up and do an amazing film. So we'll all look forward, not to the event itself, yeah. but for your telling of the story. Anything that happens in Hawaii, we're there. We absolutely love it there. The people were so kind to us as we were doing this. I, I was telling Keiko, I always thought the Aloha spirit was some kind of marketing tagline that they use for the tourism commission, but I... I'm a true believer now that there is an aloha spirit there and we experienced it and just want to say thank you to everyone there for, for helping us get this project done. Guys, any last thoughts you want to leave us with? I, I think I do want to say that we, we had shot this film in the year after the missile alert and we had put it aside because we were busy with other projects, but also I think we were a little bit daunted on how we were going to put this into something that meant something to people and that had value to people who didn't experience it and who don't live in Hawaii and well, how would it be relevant, right? And then COVID hit and it felt like it was sort of, everything was in line for us to sit down and take the time because things had slowed down to really finish this project. It felt more relevant than ever. I mean, I think when you're living in a time where life feels really fragile, looking back at what other people learned from another near-death experience meant something. And so I think we kind of became renewed at the idea that this story is timeless and locationless. It is about humanity and, and how we live our lives. Well, Robin Keiko Feldman, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed hearing about your thoughts about your film, This Is Not a Drill. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for watching it and for having an interest in it. We really appreciate it. Thanks for the conversation, Aaron. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, please go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Please be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks Podcast and accompanying blog notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please be sure to follow Mind Tricks on Facebook by following and liking posts by myself, your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.